Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Ian Stewart will join us to discuss In Pursuit of the Unknown. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, equations have revolutionized our thinking and our way of life, from our knowledge of the laws of nature and our understanding of the universe to the technologies that we use every day. Furthermore, according to the celebrated mathematician Professor Ian Stewart, the course of human history has been redirected time and time again by an equation. In his new book, In Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World, it guides readers on a lively romp through the history of math and thus the history of mankind. Professor Stewart is the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and an active researcher at Warwick University in England and author of many books on mathematics, including Professor Stewart's Cabinet of Mathematical Curiosities and The Mathematics of Life. His new book, In Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World, talks about these equations that changed the world and explains them for a general audience. And Professor Stewart, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for inviting me. Very kind of you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is certainly a, a great book, very interesting. You choose 17 equations that change the world. Why did you decide to write the book, and why these 17 equations in particular? I decided to write the book because my publisher was talking to a Dutch publishing company who translates some of my books, and they said, do, do you know anyone who's done a book about the history of, of the, the, the important equations? And we thought about this and thought, well, uh, there are a few books of that kind, but actually there isn't one that really tackles equations seriously head-on and tries to explain just how significant they are. Um, so uh, the more we thought about this, the more we thought, hey, actually that's quite a good idea. And it turned out to be a really fun book to write because I learned an awful lot about history and about the things that happened to, you know, I, I, I knew the equations, but I didn't always know as much as maybe I should have done about, um, you know, what, what the real history of them was. So it was a voyage of discovery for me. Well, certainly an interesting way to walk through history in looking at mathematics. Uh, were there particular equations that just popped out as being, oh, this is the equation of the time and that really led to the next step? Yeah, there were some which were kind of must-have equations. Everybody knows about Pythagoras' theorem, and in the sense that's uh, a geometric version of the first really, really significant equation. So that had to go in, and also it was a nice way to start because it's sort of familiar. Um, and then there were things like the, the wave equation and Maxwell's equations for electricity and magnetism and something from Einstein and something from quantum mechanics and you start to pile it and Newton's law of gravity <laughs> and I was making a list and by the time I'd written down my kind of shopping list it had about twice as many equations as you could possibly wish to cram into a book so then it had to be weeded down so what I did was say well firstly 
these equations really had to have a major impact. I have to be able to tell a story, at least, that says they had a really big impact on human history. And that impact is still in some form with us today, even if we now use that equation for a different purpose. It's still important. By the time I'd done that, I got it down to about 20, and then I managed to combine a few into, you know, two or three equations into the same chapter with just one of them uh, acting as a kind of peg to hang the whole story on. You don't need three chapters on Einstein's relativity. One will do, but there are at least three important equations there. Um, so by the time I'd done that, it got to 17. I looked at that and thought, you know, that, that, that's a nice number. It's a sort of comfortable size. It's about right for a, for a book. You can have a decent length chapter on each one of them. And it's one of those slightly intriguing sort of numbers. So everyone says, why 17? <laughs> Exactly. Why 17 is a bit of an odd number for those of us. We might choose something round, like 20 or 20. <laughs> My feeling was if I, if, I, if I chose 20, it would sound like, oh, well, you know, we sort of just settled for 20, and that was basically it. I mean, we, we did really work really, really hard to chop it down as far as we could. Um, 17 got to the point where I could have thrown a couple of the chapters away, but some really interesting material would, would have been left out, and some things that I think are genuinely significant would have been left out. So, you know, 17 is what it eventually settled on. Well, uh, 17 equations that uh, changed the world, and there it is. And I'm curious if any of those 17, then, um, among the, the main ones there, really, you think, stick out, or were they all just, again, like much of math, they build one upon the other? They build upon each other. They're interrelated. There's a sort of rough chronological order that goes through the book, starting with the simplest and the basic ones. You can go from Pythagoras' theorem to Einstein's relativity in a relatively short mathematical step. Um, but there are one or two which I think really do stand out as being more important in many ways mathematically and scientifically, but very much so practically than uh, perhaps the rest are, um, and those are particularly things like the wave equation, which describes all kinds of waves, and Maxwell's equation for electricity and magnetism, which is the basis of um, everything we now do with electricity. Um, modern electronics uses quantum theory as well, but our electrical gadgets, our electrical power system, all of these things come from Maxwell, and then radio and television uh, are perhaps the the most the, the, the biggest impact developments that came out of putting Maxwell and the wave equation together. And for, and for those who aren't really familiar with Maxwell's equations, what do they say, and uh, how really do they give rise to all the um, modern marvels? They're a little bit daunting when you look at them, but um, they're mathematical expressions of what experimental physicists, particularly Michael Faraday and various other physicists, had, had learned about how electricity and magnetism relate to each other. So, for example, if you pass a magnet, if you move a magnet through a coil of wire, you, you generate an electrical current in the wire without actually touching it, which is quite interesting. And you can, if you pass electricity through a loop of wire, you get an electromagnet, you can make a magnet. So you can somehow convert electricity and magnetism into each other, but the trick seems to be you have to move them around. And what Maxwell did was say, 
I can write down mathematical equations which describe exactly what the physicists are saying. It wasn't easy, but he did. And they're very neat, tidy equations. They're basically four of them. And two of them essentially just say that magnetism and electricity don't disappear and they don't get created from nothing. But the other two explain how a moving magnetic field creates an electrical field and how a moving electrical field creates a magnetic field. And, and so in both ways, they describe different aspects of the electromagnetism, right? Absolutely. Right. But yes, the, the deep message of it is that electricity and magnetism are not really two separate phenomena at all. They're, they're two different aspects of some unified electromagnetic field. Uh, so how do then do people go from this then to developing all the gadgets that we have today? Okay. Um, once you've got these equations, you really can. The, the, these equations are genuinely practically useful because you can sit down and start calculating how electricity and magnetism behave under lots of different circumstances. And one of the first things that came out of it was if you, you just look at those equations and you do the sort of games that mathematical physicists would naturally do when faced with equations of that kind, and you sort of try and get rid of the... the you, you've got equations combining electricity and magnetism. You try and sort of separate them out into something about electricity on its own, something about magnetism on its own. And what emerges is the wave equation for both electricity and magnetism. And so that tells you that there must be things that are basically electromagnetic waves. There must be waves of varying electrical and magnetic fields, which, according to the equations, could travel through a vacuum, or they could travel through thin air. You didn't need a wire. And furthermore, the equations told you how fast they went, and they went at the speed of light. And that was interesting because that suggested that light itself must be one of these waves. And although scientists were pretty convinced light was a wave, they didn't know what sort of wave. It was a light wave. No, it's an electromagnetic wave. Light is actually a manifestation of electricity and magnetism. And the equations also said, uh, as well as visible light, there will be waves like light, but with very different wavelengths. The distance between successive peaks of the wave could be much longer, for example, and if they're much longer, that gives you radio. And then television and other things follow. So the equations were a very, very strong hint that if you did the right experiments and invented the right gadgets, you could create some sort of very rapidly moving signal. And uh, the physicists then started looking, and they're silly experiments. If you hadn't had the equations, you would never have thought of doing these experiments. Set up a, uh, something at one end of your laboratory that makes a spark, set up a coil of wire at the other end and see if you can detect something coming from that spark. I mean, sorry, it's, it's you know, 30 feet away down the other end of the laboratory and it's just a little spark. How on earth is, is the electricity going to get to my wire coil? But when they did the experiments, it did. So some sort of wave was being transmitted. So the equations guided the early experiments, and those in turn provided useful information for people like Marconi, who started to turn it into wirelesses, into gadgets people would want to buy. And then after all, it sort of spirals out after that, and everything feeds off everything else. And we get a large part of today's world. We get things that we would not wish to live without. The equations that led up to Maxwell's equation are, are really in a way, and most equations are really in a way, the history of physics as well. Yeah, they're the history of physics, the history of mathematics. And one of the things you discover is that a lot of important equations first appeared in something that was not terribly practical, um, was some sort of mathematician's toy game. Uh, the wave equation first appeared in a rather 
uh, unrealistic analysis of a vibrating violin string. It was mathematicians interested in music. And they wrote down the simplest possible model they could in which the, the violin string was just a mathematician's line and it only vibrated in, in two dimensions in a plane. And nonetheless, once they'd done that, you, you could start putting bells and whistles onto the equations and say, actually, you know, the same basic ideas now that we've figured them out, you could use those for um, all kinds of waves, for water waves, sound waves, for uh, waves of vibration in the earth caused by earthquakes. You could use the same or at least very similar equations and understand all of those as well. Go from waves and then into the Fourier transform, which uh, is equally important, and the two are related. The, the Fourier transform is one of the great electronic engineering gadgets nowadays. It's used for other purposes too, but it is a, it's a technique. It, if, I think if you wanted to find a mathematical idea which is enormously widely used, but hardly anybody realizes it, the Fourier transform is your guy. Um, what it is, it says if you take some complicated sort of shape of a wave, uh, but it repeats regularly, and you can represent that complicated shape by combining much, much simpler shapes together. The simpler shapes are sine curves. They're just sort of pure uh, waves that vary in a nice, very smooth manner. Um, the main point is you can have different amplitudes. It can be different height and different frequencies, that is, the spacing of the waves can vary. And the Fourier transform takes any old shape and turns it into a list of its component simple waves and their amplitudes and their frequencies. So it kind of pulls it apart in a very interesting way. So in a sense, it reduces a much more complicated thing to a very simplified form. It reduces it to a simplified form, but to a rather complicated list of simplified <laughs> forms, <Okay. laughs> to be fair. But in the new form, as a list of, of these simple waves, you can start to play games that you couldn't really sensibly do with the original complicated object, because now you've got it dissected out very neatly into all the bits and pieces. So one of the ways that most of us carry around gadgets that use it um, is digital photography. And... Considering that the Fourier transform started as a mathematical technique for studying the flow of heat, that's quite an interesting leap. And in digital photography, okay, as uh, it will probably become obsolete because what it's used for is to compress the information in a photograph, in an image. And at the moment, the memory cards for cameras, the, their capacity is such that if you compress the data, you can get, you know, I, I mean, I, I typically take... Uh, 1,200, 1,400 photographs on, on, a, on a holiday trip. Uh, and this all goes on one fairly small camera card. Um, as the cards get bigger and bigger memories, then there will come a point when probably this whole technique becomes obsolete. It's already very close to obsolete. Um, but in the kind of point-and-click cameras and mobile cell phone cameras that most of us use, it's still very common. And it plays the same game, but it does it with... Um, with the, the digital image as a kind of grayscale representation of what you're looking at. So there's a kind of shape there, which is how the intensity of black to white varies across the rectangle of the image. And mathematically, this is just like um, a wave. Uh, it's a wave that's traveling in two different directions, but it's basically a wave. And you can use this trick that Joseph Fourier invented to decompose a complicated wave into simple ones, 
uh, on your photograph. And then you can look at it and say, well, actually, the human eye can't detect the very high-frequency stuff, the stuff that varies very, very quickly across the image. So we just throw that away. Um, and you can start to filter out bits and pieces that, as far as a human uh, observer is concerned, really don't make much difference. You just can't do that with the original image directly. But with the Fourier transform, it's very, very easy. And then when you finish, you kind of detransform, reverse the whole process, and reconstruct an image. But what the camera card records is the list of components in the image, which is a much shorter list than every single pixel in the image one by one, starting at top left, reading through to bottom right. Later in the book, you actually go in and talk about information theory. Yeah, I mean, this is a wonderful discovery, and uh, it's one of the places in the book where it's not just an equation that represents in mathematical form something in the physical world. Uh, the basic equation of information theory, which was introduced by an engineer called Claude Shannon, um, it actually defines what information is. Uh, prior to Shannon, people used the word information in a rather loose sort of sense. You know, you, you knew that if you talk for a long time, you conveyed more information. Um, but Shannon said, no, look, I can tell you exactly what, what information is. Basically, if you toss a coin, it can either be heads or tails. And if you don't know that, you have no information at all about the coin. But if I say to you, it's heads, what I've done is to select one possible choice from two equally likely ones. That is one bit of information. This is the sort of basic smallest quantity of information that there is. It's the answer to a yes-no question where either is equally likely. And then from that, he developed a whole theory of how, how you can transmit and receive messages, for example, um, using codes that will preserve the message even if there's an awful lot of scrambling goes on along the way. Uh, some sort of interference, let's say. You send a radio message, there's interference, you don't get the full message at the other end. But if you put it into code in the right way, then you can reconstruct the message as long as there aren't too many symbols in the message that come through wrong. Um, and Shannon's measure of information gives you very good estimates for how efficient such codes can be. They tell you that you can go so far with the codes, you can... but you, in order to deal with a certain amount of interference, you will need to code the message so that it's twice as long or three times as long or whatever, and you can't do better than that. So it guided the engineers. It's interesting that in information theory they use the term term entropy, which seems to derive from, in nomenclature, from the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> it, it's an interesting... At first, a lot of people felt that what happens is you look at the formula for information that Shannon came up with, and it looks remarkably like a formula for thermodynamic entropy, which is a sort of level of disorder in, uh, a, in, a, in a gas, let's say, lots of molecules bouncing around. How disordered is it? You calculate a thing called the entropy, and Ludwig Boltzmann wrote down a formula for entropy, which looks remarkably like Shannon's formula for information. Um, it's very similar, except it's got a minus sign in front. So uh, information is negative entropy. Uh, information helps you order things. It tells you, you know, if, if, if I give you the information in the human genome for DNA, you actually now know exactly which order all the different DNA base code symbols occur. So that's order rather than disorder. 
So there is a, a very close resemblance between the two. Um, for a time, people felt this was a sort of a, a little bit of a mathematical pun um, because the actual context was so different. But more recent investigations show that with the right interpretation, you have to be careful. But with the right interpretation, this this link between information and entropy in the thermodynamic disorder sense it is a genuine link. It, it has implications for physics and for mathematics. The, the, the great thing with the mathematics is once you've written down your equation, you can start sort of just following your mathematical nose and you can stop worrying too much about the, the interpreting it all as you go along. You say, well, and what happens if I multiply this by three and subtract that and play around with these equations? Oh, look, that's interesting. I wonder why it did that. Or, oh, look, I've seen that before. Um, so the equation sort of develops a life of its own with a little bit of help from a mathematician or a mathematical physicist. And both have their own kind of way of playing that game. So the physicist will actually be bearing the physical interpretation in mind all the time, which will help to guide what they do. And the mathematician will be looking at the form and saying, hmm, that looks a bit strange. Wouldn't it be better if I move this bit over there? Oh, that looks much nicer. Um, so they do that kind of, and between them, they come up with uh, quite remarkable results. Well, maybe to close, I want to go to the very last equation in, in the book, and uh, certainly uh, one that yeah. probably took on a life of its own in a bad way is the, this Black-Scholes equation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wanted to, to tell the story of an equation which, which sort of had a dark side, and you can over-exaggerate the extent to which this particular equation, it, it, it's a basic equation in the mathematics of, of finance. It's a very good equation. It's a very sensible, clever equation. It did a lot of good, but it encouraged the financial sector to develop a lot of ever more complicated financial instruments and to develop mathematical techniques for putting what they felt was a sensible price on them and for estimating how risky they were as investments and so forth. And one of the things that contributed to the recent financial crisis, indeed the ongoing financial crisis, if you look at various European governments, such as Greece, um, one of the things that contributed was this kind of overestimate of just how um, accurate this kind of mathematical modelling was. And it gave people a false sense of security, I think, in some ways, or it contributed to a false sense of security. It wasn't the only thing. Um, I mean, looking back on the crisis, you think, but didn't they realize that lending huge amounts of money to people who could never pay it back probably wasn't a great idea? Um, but at the time, the bankers and so on could actually point to a whole pile of quite sophisticated analyses and say, well, look, this says it's safe. It'll work. It's okay. Don't worry. We know what we're doing. Well, it turned out actually they didn't. But uh, so I tried to tell the equation of, of both the, the good side and the dark side of the Black-Scholes equation which is picked because it's representative of this whole way of thinking. It won a Nobel Prize for economics, uh, and it deserved to. Um, but people forgot its limitations, and they did a whole pile of other things which had nothing to do with the equation at all, and <laughs> it really should not be blamed for. So, so in a sense, they used it to justify their irrational behaviors in a way. Yeah, and you know, if uh, if the equation hadn't existed, they would have used something else. I right. suspect. Maybe we can just close them in summarizing these seventeen equations and what you really think they all say about uh, the history of mathematics and really the history of the world. What it shows is that 
Mathematics is not this sort of ivory tower subject that's off in some corner of the world that has no effect on everything else. Um, <laughs> a lot of it is. But the actual enterprise combined with physics, combined with experiments, combined with engineering, combined with business as a part of human culture, mathematics has played a very prominent role in changing the course of history. And I think people ought to be aware of that. And that's the real message I wanted to put over in the book. Uh, the book, again, is called In Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World, and our guest was Professor Ian Stewart. Professor Stewart, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Okay. If you do have a few seconds, though, we would quickly like to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yep, I'm done. <clears throat> All right. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic type of equation. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if there was an equation to describe them, what type of equation would it be and why? Professor Stewart, are you ready to play the game? Just about, yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, person number one, what type of equation would describe him? It's the uh, uh, pop idol host, Simon Cowell. Oh, okay. I would use Newton's law of motion because Newton's law motion tells us how how things change over time, how they they how they move under implied forces. I mean, in a rather metaphorical way, um, Simon Cowell is, is definitely a force of nature in his own. The movers and changers in uh, in an area of human activity that, uh, to be honest, is not one that I know a lot about. All right, uh, number two. What type of ty type of equation would describe uh, the soccer great David Beckham? Oh, okay. Actually, Newton's, Newton's law of motion again, but for a much better reason. It's not metaphorical anymore. Um, somewhere inside David Beckham's head is an extraordinarily accurate model of how a football, a soccer ball, moves when you kick it. I mean, he is extraordinarily good at it. He's much better than either... Um, you have to go to very sophisticated mathematical equations with you know the spin on the ball and the friction with the air and all sorts of things before you could even begin to to model what he manages to do with a soccer ball so i i'd, I'd attribute a different aspect of newton's law of motion to him well he can certainly spin the ball that's for sure <laughs> End it like Beckham. that's right yeah <laughs> all right well number number three it's uh evolutionary biologist richard dawkins richard dawkins Ah, there are equations describing evolution. Uh, there are some quite interesting equations. They're not in my book. I did actually put them in the previous book, The Mathematics of Life. And these are equations for evolutionarily stable strategies. They're the kind of first level of modeling mathematically the sort of things that Richard Dawkins talked about. So if I were to focus on his biology, then I, I would go for uh, equations for mathematical equations that represent evolutionary processes. Okay, uh, number four, it's the uh, wife of Ozzy Osbourne, Sharon Osbourne. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm an Ozzy Osbourne fan. The equations of chaos theory are clearly what what what, what applies. Yeah, uh, and there is a chapter on those in the book, although it, it doesn't mention Ozzy or Sharon. <laughs> well, it's sort of a controlled chaos, I think, that they have going on. <laughs> 
Well, for that, well, of course, is the point of chaos theory. It is not totally disordered. It has, it has a hidden structure. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ozzy's case, sometimes it's very well hidden, but he's um, <laughs> a very interesting character. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, finally, number five, uh, what type of equation would describe him? It's uh, Prime Minister David Cameron. Prime Minister David Cameron. Politically, I'm not a great fan of his, but I will try not to... Um, I would be inclined to pick something uh, out of probability theory. The, the, the normal distribution, the, the normal distribution is a mathematical curve. It's often called the bell curve. It explains how such things as, as the height of human beings tends to cluster around a particular kind of central value, but spreads out to the side in a fairly um, well-defined way. And this is one of the basic uh, equations of probability theory. And what has happened in British politics recently, and happened in American politics, I think, rather longer ago, is that all of the political parties in various ways started to kind of move towards some sort of central position. Because if if you're too far from the centre, then there's room for somebody else to move in between and steal your voters. Um, the, 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 The paradigm for this is two ice cream men on a beach. And if they each stand at sort of uh, a quarter of the way along the beach from each end, then actually it makes it easier for everyone to get to them. But they actually end up, both of them together, in the middle of the beach because that way uh, they don't lose custom to the other one if he starts to move. So political parties tend to home in on the middle ground. They have their own interpretation of it. Um, And David Cameron's interpretation of the middle ground is not the same as mine, or indeed the opposition parties. But it's not that far off. And so he's tending to at least trying to stay away from the, the really extreme views. Yeah, so normal distribution for David. <laughs> uh, Professor Stewart, I want to thank you very much um, sticking around playing our game and again talking about your book In Pursuit of the Unknown, 17 Equations That Changed the World. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The game was great. Fun. <laughs> And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.